Richard, no, that's absolutely wrong. It's just like there is no I in team. Yeah, but there is a U in favorite. No, there's not. There's not a U in favorite either. You're just making stuff up. Oh, nonsense. It's like when you go to the cinema. No, 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 no. You go to the movies because you're seeing movies. You go to the movies. That's the way it's said. Well, yes, because what you do in, in America is you go to the movie theater, don't you? I forgot. Yes, because there's still people on stage performing yes, for you. Yes, and it's theater with an E-R, you pretentious Brit. Uh, how, why, how can it be that way? We gave you the word and you just got it wrong. Well, we take what you do and we do it better. That's that's the whole point of the Revolutionary War. But you know what? It doesn't matter because at least we can agree that it's called beer and it's delicious. Uh, ale? God damn it! Welcome, friends of DVD and Blue. We're here to talk movies, both old and new. Sometimes we're loving, sometimes we're mean. To the titles for your home theater screen. Now sit right back and toast the boys who weekly bring you that digital noise. Hello, did hello, Disco Stew. Right? <laughs> Where did that come from? That was very elegant, but I'm not quite sure what. That was a strange moment. It came from the closet where I keep the platforms with the fish inside. Oh. So I'm going to climb down off this damn tree stump, toss my magical tome in the gumdrop river because story time is over and it's time to get to work. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, and joining me is the universe beta version of me, Mr. Hello. Richard Whitaker. Hey, up. Hey, up. Morning. <laughs> At 4.30 in the afternoon. So, morning somewhere. I guess maybe it's the time difference. What time is it right now? You're on Greenwich Mean Time, aren't you? Uh, I'm fairly mean, yes. <laughs> Well, how are you doing, Richard? I'm good, sweaty, but you know that's true in in all in, in Texas Austin, in, in this yes. time of year. This nonsense heat. Absolutely. I can't believe the Daily Show's coming here. Yeah, you know, is it the, really? Yeah, they, they're going to be recording here for a week because you know. What are they thinking? Uh, barbecue. Somebody told them once it was nice, and that like I don't know. Maybe they want to drink cheap PBR and go. What's better than Lone Star? Why would John Stewart want to be in closer proximity to Rick Perry? Uh, question many of us have asked. It's not like he can't hit that target from New York. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Well, I want to remind you guys that Digital Noise, like all of our content on one of us, is available on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher if you're not much of an iTunes user. I don't know what I don't know what the division is there, like the Jets and the Sharks of like, I use iTunes, I use Stitcher, but we are both in America. Um, we're also available on... Hello, Maria. I know. I don't know what's up with me in music today. You're full of song today, aren't I, you? I am a pretty little songbird today. Uh, we're also on Twitter for you to follow at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. Or you can follow the website at One of Us Net. You can also like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com slash you guessed it, One of Us Net. And please do consider becoming a subscriber to One of Us.net. That's how we keep providing you with great content. Uh, we got a lot of great bonus stuff uh, at the various levels of subscription. There's a little icon right there on the sidebar that explains all of this way better than I can because all I'm doing right now is rambling until I get another chance to sing. That was no. That was no? No. Like Dr. No, the musical? Because I've been working on that, and it'll have the original ending where it's like, what's going to happen? I don't know, but he is dipped into the bat guano. Did you exchange the sleeves off your t-shirt for the <laughs> magic of song? Is that I'm, what's going on? It is like the, it's like the gift of the magi. The, the ironic part is everyone who wants to hear me sing also wants me to be wearing sleeves, so sad. It's... 
It's like being on the set of the, of the Sound of Music with Kevin Steen in here today. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Don't go near him. He's a Nazi. Damn it. <laughs> Why would you do that? Anywho, it's time to reach out to the Innisfere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, the Letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. You're walking much creepier lately. Our first question comes from Paracinemascopic. That is the actual name on this question. Paracinemascopic. What do you consider the best and worst in DVD or Blu-ray extras? So in all the special features, uh, the things that come standard time and time again, what are the best and what are the worst? The worst is uh, where they try and dress up uh, I know exactly what the, the EPK. Oh. Uh, the little the little interviewettes that they pre-ship out to to uh, TV uh, TV Sturms. TV Sterns? TV Sturms. Is that um, a British term I'm not familiar with? Yes. <laughs> Anything I say that sounds like garbled nonsense is just a Britishism. Please mommy, walk along. Mommy, give me a sweetie and turn on the Sturms. <laughs> I want to watch the programs. Hey, I grew up with three channels. That was all. Um, <laughs> no, when they, when they dress up a, a, an electronic press kit and those prepackaged interviews and try and make it look like that's an extra, no, it's not. Um, still my all-time favorite. It, there's nothing that can beat a good commentary track. There really yeah. isn't. When you, you when you get somebody who really is on form, or they're just telling you great stories that are co- quite often totally unrelated uh, to to the, what's going on on the screen, or they're just giving you wonderfully opaque references. Uh, I love uh, the contra track for Barbarian Sound Studio because the director does nothing to tell you what the plot is. Oh, good. Uh, or what's going on. He adds well, he more clues and nuances, and he actually says, look, I mean, okay, here's, here's, here's a reference. Go and work that reference out. Um, he or- didn't tell us what it was about in the movie. I don't know why you were expecting him to do it in the special features. <laughs> Uh, also, but then you know, I, I love um, Pitch uh, Pitch Black, where every scene, Vin D, a very drunk Vin Diesel goes, "Oh, this is my favorite scene," uh, <laughs> and then Cole Hauser goes, "Is this your favorite scene?" Just because you're in it, and you went, "Yes." yes. It's like, what's your least favorite scenes? The this ones with just you in it. <laughs> the scenes I'm not in. I, I, I mean, obviously. But yeah, I'll do you one worse on uh, the things that are dressed up to look like special features that are not at all special features. DVD credits the people who authored the dvd and oftentimes on on dvds they were hidden as easter eggs oh yes the almost all the new line uh dvds that were put out had an easter egg quote unquote where you can find out the names of the people that made the dvd like physically printed the dvd and it's like i don't care that's not a special feature you're insane actually you know what i really miss that well no (laughs) really super elaborate um uh Menus. Yeah. Uh, I was re-watching House of a Thousand Corpses this weekend. Uh, shut up, I love it. Um, I didn't say a word. I've already maligned you enough on this show. Hush, child. Um, and every single screen has like long, complicated actual action sequences with the characters coming in and talking to you and hurling abuse at you through the screen. And it's wonderful. I was like, why does nobody do that anymore? <laughs> you know, what, you know so, so often now you get a disc and it's just like, it's just a menu screen. It's like they've gone back to the really early days of DVDs when right. you didn't even have music over it. It's just like, oh, here are your three options and a still from the film. And I'm like, really? You know, put a, put 10 minutes of effort in. Yeah. You know it's going to be on DVD or Blu-ray. Try something. Yeah, just just nip around the back of the of the, the set for five minutes, knock some footage out, do something. It's not that hard. Right. My best is always going to be um, the trivia tracks. I mean, I still think the best one is on um, Shaun of the Dead. 
where it not only you know tells you some behind the scenes stuff, but points out, you know, since it was this was really the film that introduced a lot of people to Edgar Wright. So it explains what would become his calling card is this sort of the callback jokes. Like, you know, pay attention to this because it actually my favorite is they break down the entire discussion that Ed and Sean have at the beginning of the movie where he's like listing what they're going to do that day. And you realize he's describing all of the events of the plot, uh, saying things like, we'll have a bite at the king's head, uh, as in King Philip, as in his stepdad Philip, who's going to get bitten, uh, uh, have a Bloody Mary, and the, the zombie's name in the backyard is Mary, uh, back here in time for shots, where they're shooting all this. Like, they're just listing the entire plot, and just, you know, also in dis- disguising it as uh, what they're going to do drinking-wise. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a great trivia track, and every movie I've ever seen, good or bad, that has a trivia track on it, I'm always fascinated to watch the trivia track so that's that's my favorite type of special feature yeah now we know now we know and knowing is half the battle <laughs> the other half fighting the battle the next question comes from tyler Mathiason, who asks what is the most badass thing in your opinion a movie character has ever done wow this is uh this is a broad question uh easy peasy lemon squeezy yeah uh raise the lost ark Oh yes, the moment in the market when the crowd parts uh, while <laughs> while Indy is trying to find Marion after she's been stuck in the basket. Right, right, right. And he turns round, and there's this huge guy with a scimitar. And what they wrote originally was a what Spielberg has defi- said would have been the definitive bullwhip versus scimitar fight, which I'm Finally. sure, yeah, I'm sure there haven't been that many of them. But it was this five-minute fight sequence. Mm-hmm. On the day, Harrison Ford was sick as a pig with what uh, Spielberg has described as a case of the Tunisian touristas uh, and could barely <laughs> stand up right. for more than 30 seconds. So rather than try and shoot that, which would have just a complete nightmare, somebody, some bright spark goes, why don't you just shoot him? <laughs> and it's a brilliant character moment because you've got this guy who's like you know Indy has a thing to do he's got to try and rescue Marion the last thing you would do is get into a bullshit fight with a crazy guy with a sword so he just pulls out his gun and shoots him and turns around and gets on with his day yeah. and it's so perfect because like it's complete accident but it actually makes more sense than the fight would have done right uh, so absolutely I, like, cause it, and it just says this guy's a badass he knows what he needs to get done yeah no, that's that's a good one. Um, it's it's not anywhere near as spectacular as that, but it's it's a moment that has always kind of defined being all that is man for me is Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia snuffing out the flame with his finger, and then when someone asks him what is what's the trick to keep it from hurting, and he turns around and he says. The trick, dear boy, is not minding that it hurts. I just always thought that was such a badass thing, and it's like. It's this very small moment, but it kind of defines who he is for the rest of the film. And then, of course, at the beginning of the movie, uh, you know, after he's lived this entire life, he, he, you know, he dies in a motorcycle accident, and it's just like he—he's a badass. Yeah. Like Lawrence of Arabia is one of film filmdom's greatest badasses, and uh, that moment has always uh, has always sparked, if you will, my imagination. Isn't it funny how we both went for things set in uh, in. Arabic nation. Yeah, that is a little That's odd. That's a weird coincidence. I mean, my my second was going to be that scene in uh, Team America: World Police, where you know they turn around the car and say "surprise, cockfags," but um, <laughs> you know I thought that was a little too much. So, but yeah, too, no, too appar- obvious. Apparently, that region of the world is where uh, the most cinematic badass moments are bred. So Seemingly, there you go, the yeah, cradle of life. All right, well, that's going to do it for the letterbox this week. We're going to lock that away and stuff it back under Chris's bed where it belongs, next to the old monkey cat toys. 
And we are going to get on with the reviews. And reminding you yet again that every movie we talk about will have a little Amazon icon right underneath the page here. Right underneath the recording on the page, I should say. If you click on that, you get to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that item, as long as you get to Amazon via that link, anything you buy benefits the site. And we really do appreciate it. So we're going to start this week, obviously, with Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Which is a little movie that flew under the radar. Very low uh, profile. Until the day it was released. And doesn't, it, doesn't it start with uh, Chris Evans from Snowpiercer? Yes, it's yeah. Chris Evans, who you may recognize as Johnny Storm from the Fantastic Four. Uh, shifting Don't gears. be mean. That's that's he was the he was the best thing in the Fantastic Four movies. He so, was. Yeah. I mean the the. In, <laughs> The product placement laden fight between he and the thing, notwithstanding, where he literally gets punched through a Burger King. Like, a, a billboard so big, he might as well, the fight may as well have been, you know, set inside a Dr. Pepper can. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Anywho, so Captain America Winter Soldier obviously is based on the Ed Brubaker uh, storyline about uh, the mysterious Winter Soldier, who, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, read the book, or been on the internet since April... Uh, is Bucky Barnes, his longtime childhood friend who supposedly died in Captain America the First Avenger. Uh, it's also what I love so much about Captain America Winter Soldier, which is as great as it is, my second favorite Marvel movie this year. Um, <laughs> which says everything you need to know. It may be, but you know what? It may be my second favorite Marvel film overall. I think Guardians may be my favorite Marvel film yet, followed by Winter Soldier, followed by Avengers. And what I love so much about this movie is how they shied away, at least in part, from the established trappings of a superhero movie and aimed more for an espionage thriller. Yeah. I really like that about it. Well, you know that the instant they introduced Robert Redford. Yes, uh, Spy Game himself shows yeah, up. The, you know, Three Days of the Condor arrives. Um, oh, yeah, and I guess that movie, too. Yeah, I went immediately for Spy Game. But, yes, Three Days of the Condor as well. Because you're so young. Yes, I am. You know, he's like a babby. Well, you look younger without your beard, I, I must know, say. it's freaking everybody out. <laughs> you look like a cherub. Uh, well, a lawn gnome. But, but yeah, you know. I mean, the, 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 the this is a spy movie that looks like a... a superhero movie and that's what Ed Brubaker did in the comic and I think doing this storyline is great because the basic idea is that you find out if you've been watching um, Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. um, you find out that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been utterly compromised by HYDRA which which was the entity that in previous incarnation had compromised the Nazi party Mm -hmm. and it really really puts a nice perspective on that because you go oh well in the first film they were just Nazis like no 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 the Nazis didn't know what the the Red Skull was getting up to this is that plot continued this is where that goes that Hydra is here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and the mysterious Winter Soldier, who is this kind of quasi-mythical boogeyman uh, of, the, of the intelligence community, turns up and does a pretty serious number on Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I love about it, too, is they've actually not only added a new context for, you know, I mean, the, the original or the first Captain America movie was uh, a period piece set in World War II. But they've added a new context for not only every superhero event that has come since World War II, but actual history as well. It's kind of got a Watchmen angle in that way, where it really does recontextualize history using superhero characters. Because basically they establish that the Winter Soldier was used in every major uh, assassination that turned the tide of wars and uh, political movements. The JFK assassination. It's it's incredible. The, yeah. like The way they kind of use actual history to explain how the Winter Soldier has uh, 
been such a such a had such a huge impact on the world. And it's it's another great performance for Scarlett Johansson. I think this is where. Uh, uh, Black Widow really comes into her own because there's a great opening crazy fight sequence uh, where, where they're taking on a bunch of terrorists which is kind of I think they they looked at the expendable, the first Expendables and went yeah you did that okay yeah you did the fight sequence on a boat okay this is how you really do it this is a big star spangled middle finger to the opening of the Expendables yeah um, <laughs> and all the way through it you think well you know this is Cap and and uh, Black Widow side by side and suddenly you get to the end and go Black Widow's a spy yeah you have to remember this and this is that's the great thing about this is this is not a film just about Captain America this is about Cap this is about Black Widow this is about the Winter Soldier it's about people who have done beyond questionable things and Nick Fury as well yeah mm-hmm. um, and also finally we get the introduction of uh, the Falcon yes oh my god Anthony Mackie as the Falcon is my favorite favorite part of this film i think he is so charismatic and yet they i don't know they make him so they make him almost as uh i don't even really know how to describe it he's just he's so good like he is so on the side of right like he's so unflappably good that he kind of mirrors uh the cap in that way and I, well, I, I really the like the way did, they team up. I love the fact they did that because it makes you go, hang on, there is still, you know, it is, it, he, he's not a man out of time after all. There are people with yes. the same sensibility to him, with the same conscience, with the same sense of direction. Um, the the really great thing about this film is that it's directed by the guys that, that did the paintball episodes of um, Community. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, didn't they also co-write Marley and Me? The world's saddest film. I, I actually didn't know that. And I interviewed those guys a couple weeks ago. And had I known that, I definitely would have brought it up. I did ask them whether they thought com- working on Community, which is if there is one TV show that no- knows how to appropriately treat and reverently nod toward geek properties, it's Community. Yeah. So I asked them, you know, do you think that working on that show was kind of its own weird training for doing a comic book movie and they were like oh absolutely because the way that Marvel works right now is a lot like the writing process on Community you have a lot of people who get together and throw out crazy ideas and are all pop culture junkies and are there to, to support each other and create the absolute best product they can um, So, and you see it with this movie like one of my favorite oh my god one of my favorite elements in this film that felt like they were it felt like Joe and Anthony Russo or, or the writers uh, I should say uh, which is Marcus and McFeely it felt like they were reaching out of the screen and saying, Brian, this moment is for you. And it's when Anthony Mackie, Anthony Mackie starts talking about the Trouble Man soundtrack yeah. that Marvin Gaye did. I was like, I was looking around like everybody else heard that, right? Like I'm not having a stroke. I didn't know that other people knew that soundtrack existed. <laughs> and it becomes a callback point in this film. And it made me so, so happy. Yeah. No, there is there is the 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 fact that this is going to be overshadowed by the fact that Guardians was so insanely good. Yeah. But this is you know everybody's been expecting oh Marvel's going to drop the ball at some point. It's like it did not happen this year, no. kids, and they are making. I think they're continuing to make really brave choices on directors, really brave choices on writers, and I think it's paying off. And not only that, but now that the X Men movies are getting better, they can't rest on their laurels. They have to step their game up now too. Because that's, of course, one of the Marvel properties that filmically isn't owned by Marvel Studios. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the, the, next, the next phase. Let's put it this way. Doesn't it tell you everything that at one point a DC's Dawn of Justice was going to open the same weekend as Cap and... Cap two you know, is Cap three, and then Cap two opens, and <laughs> DC blinks. Cat for the hero. 
<laughs> Absolutely. This this is one of the best Marvel movies to yet be released, and I say that with absolutely no hyperbole. It earns every inch of that praise. Uh, the action sequences, the dialogue, which uh, I got to give credit to Marcus and McFeely because they have found uh, they found a way to make dialogue that feels very Joss Whedon without being written by Joss Whedon. Like yeah. it's very punchy, uh, it's very funny. There are a lot of irreverent moments that still feel very real, very authentic. Um, and on top of all of that, you have a great espionage story. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, with that, and then the space opera superhero story of Guardians of the Galaxy. It's fun to me to see that it's it's starting to transcend into other genres. Yeah. And a su- and a superhero movie is no longer just one thing. And doing it really well. Doing it spectacularly well. And I must recommend on this Blu-ray, uh, in particular, there is a great, uh, there's a great outtake reel, a gag reel. Uh, one of my favorite things about it is apparently Anthony Mackie at the end of every scene, whether it works or not, says, cut the check. That's like his, he just, something he says on set all the time. <laughs> like he'll fall off of a, of a, of a ledge onto an air, an airbag and just look up and go, cut the check. <laughs> it's so funny. And of course they're dropping F-bombs all over the place. Uh, there's a great gag where uh, Colby Smulders can't get the helmet off. In the scene where it's like her big reveal and she's like stuck inside the helmet. <laughs> um, so, I mean, really great Blu-ray. Looks tremendous, obviously. Uh, it, this is I'm so excited to see not only what Joe and Anthony Russo do on the next Captain America, but what they do with the upcoming episodes of Agent Carter that they're going to be directing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, this is absolutely, positively, without a doubt, my pick of the week. Uh, because it is one of the best Marvel films to come out. They do give you a great package here. Um, with all the special features, and I'm sure there's going to be a phase two box set at oh, some God, point. Yeah, because they did a phase one box set, which is now is a very, very. We should actually put this on the site. Uh, it is a very reasonable price at Amazon at the moment. It's really about 120 on blue. Maybe, uh, maybe someone should buy it for me as a housewarming gift. I just moved into a new place. Just going to throw that out there. Just, just mention. It. You know, I learned from Chris that sometimes if you whine and beg for things on the air long enough, you get them. So childish as it may sound. Me that where's the sandwich? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm gonna have to go. We're gonna, this is my pick of the week as well, awesome because it's it's just you know everything you want from you know quote unquote mainstream cinema and hard and to beat. Here's what, something else that's great about the Winter Soldier right out of the gate, Richard and I are agreeing, which isn't going to happen very much on the rest of the show. So, uh, oh, it might go ahead and log that one. Oh, we're gonna move on from Captain America Winter Soldier to Willow Creek about as diametrically opposed as two movies can be. One, a giant budget superhero epic. The other, a tiny budget found footage Bigfoot horror film. Directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. Directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. See, I... That's one of the things about this movie that makes the least sense to me. Why is Bobcat Goldthwait directing this? There's nothing, in my opinion, and you, you know, feel free to chime in, there's nothing about this movie that feels even remotely Bobcat Goldthwait to me. I think that's... Well, you gotta remember... 20 years ago did anything the Bobcat Goldthwait's doing now seem like Bobcat Goldthwait no but he He's has a, yeah. he has developed you know a, a knack for you know dark comedies that really kind of uh, point and laugh even painfully at the most ugly side of humanity and this is just a standard found footage movie yeah this is well it, it starts off I, and I have to say that my problem with, with this initially was that I have seen this year's other uh, found footage Bigfoot movie exists uh, by Eduardo Sanchez, which yes. is great. Yeah. Uh, when you get when it finally emerges, that's a you know shot round Austin, 
Uh, it's got a lot of weird subtext Can I tell you about, a quick story? About, about environmentalism and about about the fires and human impact and and I, I really really love that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I got to tell you a quick story though. I was actually on set for that movie. Wait, and you have to remember Eduardo Sanchez is working with the same producers on that film that he worked with on the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. And they're filming out of this place called Spider Creek Ranch. Uh, uh, or, yeah, Spider Creek Studios, which is kind of in the middle of what used to be a uh, military base. It's just huge wilderness area. Uh, and so they take us out there, and we're we're observing a scene. And then they're like, well, let's go and take you to some of the other plots that we're using to shoot. So we go with this producer, and he's taking us around. And we, we get off the little truck that we're riding in, and we start walking in the woods. And he's like, oh, wait, no, it's over here. Oh, oh wait, hold on. No, no, it's over here. And I realize... I've just gotten myself lost in the woods with the producer of the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> like, probably the dumbest move I could have possibly made was to follow the producer of the Blair Witch Project into the woods, and then we got lost. And then they found your teeth wrapped up in a handkerchief. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I'm not even here right now. That's the creepiest part. <laughs> but yeah, Exists, I, 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 really, I had a lot of fun with Exists. There's two things a horror movie like this can do. There's two things a found footage movie can do. It can be really staggeringly frightening because it removes the fourth wall and has the aesthetic of, of hyper-realism, even with supernatural concepts, or it can just be a lot of fun. Well, I guess there is a third thing it can do, which is neither of those things. And that's my problem with Willow Creek, is it, it's not... It's not especially scary. In fact, they don't even try to scare you until a good 45 minutes into the film. Yeah. Like, there's not even an attempt at a scare for 45 minutes. And then at that point, it's just not fun. Like, I don't know. I didn't particularly like this couple that we're spending all of this time with because all they're doing is bickering about, I believe in Bigfoot. Well, I don't. And I think it's kind of silly. Why do you think, don't think I'm crazy because I believe in Bigfoot because I'm not. It's like... Okay, that's the entire scope of their relationship. I did not like the first. I'll I'll say. I mean, and this is only eighty two minutes long. I really didn't like the first fifty minutes of it uh, because all they're doing is it feels almost like outtakes. Like they didn't really bother finishing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically this couple goes to the site of one of the famous Bigfoot uh, sightings, um, and they go to all these places where there's Bigfoot memorabilia and uh, and footage, you know, and people with pictures or footprints or, you know, the murals on the wall or this one cafe somewhere that does these great Bigfoot-shaped sandwiches. Oh, I want one. Which actually looked really delicious. I really want one. Um, And it's kind of like, well, yeah, and you've done this for 50 minutes and I don't care. But then when things start to go weird why i like this and it really it really does kick in around the 30 about around the 50 minute mark <laughs> is they in the middle of the night they're camped out it's fairly predictable you're going to see this is coming and there are weird noises around the tent and they just stay there and this goes on for about 15 minutes with the camera on the ground in front of them just focused on their reactions and there's moments where they just are really stationary and i was holding my breath those that that one sequence really really worked i really wish that they'd gone back in and edited the rest of it down to about 25 minutes and this was a 60 minute film because it 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 overstays its welcome at 82 and that's because of this opening sequence it has a really interesting payoff that i didn't quite see coming but and i had to go back and re-watch that went oh right no now i get we oh oh that's kind of ew um but yeah before that you know this is i i and this got raves at so many festivals and i i'm not sure why and i think when exists comes out 
uh, I think a lot of people are going to are going to retroactively kind of knock a star or, or a star and a half off their reviews because they're going to knock a foot off their uh, review. A small foot or, or a large one? A large one. Big foot. Five out of five big feet. Hey, um, uh, and you know, I think it's just we've seen we've seen a better version of this same story this year. I, and just, I love big. I, I love Sasquatch and, and Yeti and Bigfoot and Skunk Ape movies. This is just not a particularly good one, save for one really great bold sequence. See, I don't. I I really hate that sequence. Is is my other problem with this movie is because. You know, it, maybe this is the one thing that does feel like Bobcat Goldthwait, a guy who doesn't like to play by the rules, because traditionally in a horror script, they tell you, you need to scare every 10 pages. Uh, they don't start trying to scare you until 50 minutes into the film, and then you sit there for 20 minutes and just stare at these people, listen to sounds, and then the rest of the movie is really bland. And it, it's not so much that you're being scared as you're watching two people listen to great Foley work. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't see how that's frightening. And, and then it's, and then it's kind of over. And there's this one last shot before the inevitable, you know how this movie ends because you've seen found footage, you know exactly how this fucking movie ends. And there's this one shot right before that inevitably happens. And you're like, okay, you didn't earn or explain that at all. It's just there to be Actually, like it, a last creepy image. It is, it is explained, but it's, it's, it's such a throwaway moment much earlier on that you actually, if you miss this one sentence, you are not going to get it. And, you know, frankly, I, during it, it's during that 50-minute longer where I'm kind of tuning out anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I really would like to have liked this film a lot more than I did. Mm-hmm. I think that one sequence really works. You don't. I know. Um, uh, yeah, I'm really not... Yeah, I'm just... No. <laughs> no. Um... <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I sorry, Bobcat. And I, and I love so much of your films. Yeah, we God did, bless we did. America, uh, World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, absolutely. Come back and do more stuff like that. Uh, this yeah, is this not seems like, your metier. This seems like something he would do if it was something that would earn him immediate and guaranteed mainstream success. But it's still such a small movie that it was never going to happen. So I really don't understand why there is not a single bit of his personal flair in this film. And it's like, if you knew it was such a departure from what you normally do and you weren't going to get to put your mark on it at all, why would you do it in the first place? Yeah. I don't understand. I love that we disagree on the degree to which we dislike this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's like... I dislike sure it. Well, I really dislike it. Fuck you. I'm sure there's something in here that we're going to completely disagree on. Oh, yeah. There's bound to be. Oh, yes. But oh. first, something I don't think that's going to be the case with, and that is Across 110th Street. Oh, my God. Oh. Finally coming to Blu-ray thanks to Kino Lorber, which is a company that recently has started doing these Blu-rays of... Uh, they've kind of gone the... Um, like the Twilight route or the Scorpion route. I guess they actually they did partner with Scorpion, I think is how we're getting these. Or the Olive Films route where, you know, they're they're taking these old catalog titles and and releasing them on Blu-ray. And I was so excited because Across 110th Street is one of the few black exploitation movies I actually hadn't seen. Oh, I whereas this is one that I've been waiting for for a good release for years. This is just It's a great, great th- film. This is this is Sleazy and wonderful and nasty, and this is this is New York at its grittiest and most squalid. Uh, the basic plot is that uh, three guys, in, including uh, uh, the guy that played Huggy Bear in yep. Starsky and Hutch, Antonio Vargas. Yep, is that his name? Um, knock over a a, mo- a, a mob bank in mm. Harlem. 
and make off with the money. Well, the end result of this is that uh, the black gangs are pissed at them because they've been running this place for the mob. The mob is furious because they're afraid that this is the start of them losing control. Mm -hmm. And the police are like... We have to stop this before this entire thing explodes because the mob is not, is not going to care. This isn't, you know, if, if the same thing had happened in Manhattan, you know, they'd have to play nicely. Here, they're just going to go in and start killing people. Well, and, and the added thing is that two cops were killed during the robbery. So you have these these factors from all sides that are building up to this conflagration. And, you know, it's it, like Harlem is going to explode. And into this, you have uh, Anthony Quinn, one of the greatest actors who ever lived. Um as a, as an Italian cop who works Harlem, who's used to working Harlem, but like any cop in a black exploitation movie, any white cop in a black exploitation movie is a teensy bit racist. Uh, but then there's this great great sequence where he's he's trying to work his way through the police station, and people are coming up to him, and every single person there who's not a cop is black. Yeah, um, and they're coming up, and there's one of them coming up and doing, "I need a favor," like, and, and he knows these people. Yeah. It's like he's not just coming in and, and bulbu canning his way through the, the place. He knows this community, yeah. but he's still a te- outmoded. When, when, when I say a teensy bit, I mean he really is just a teensy bit. Like, yeah. as as opposed to most white characters in black exploitation who are just like broadly drawn racist monsters, he's just a very complicated guy. And further complicating his situation is the fact that politically. They want this other cop played by Yafet Koto to handle the investigation because it's a they kind of see it as uh, a black crime in a black neighborhood. They they want a black cop on it, and those two guys just don't get along. But it's so great to watch them have to work the case together because you have two actors absolutely at the top of their game, like premier elite actors in this movie. And it's funny to me watching it. I feel like it's mis I feel like it's miscategorized. Yeah. Like it makes the lists everybody's list of best black exploitation movies. It was released by uh MGM's Soul Cinema Wing, but I don't really feel like it's exploitation in no, the this slightest. Is, this is a, a top quality crime drama because it would be like ca- calling in the heat of the night a black exploitation yeah. movie. I mean I this really is this is this is a this is a New York seventies version of In the Heat of the Night. That's really what it is. Um you know the the guys who rob the rob the mafia bank are extremely well drawn characters. They're mm-hmm. very sympathetic. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, the the guy who with the mob who is charged with finding them. He you know this is his last chance because he married into the family, but he's never really been that good. So yeah. he's overcompensating on everything he he does. Yeah, uh, and the, the best, frankly, the best performance. Uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, but uh, Doc Johnson. Who is the uh, the crime lord in Harlem? Oh, yeah. Who's actually been running the operations there for the mob? Because the mob, you know, they, they, they can't go down there and do anything. He actually runs the numbers. He, you know, he's part of it. And it is this performance of astounding menace mm-hmm. uh, where you go, where this guy knows my time is coming, and everything he does says, "You know, you can't touch me. I am the future." And there's a, a moment where he brazenly offers. The guys, the two cops, uh, a bribe, mm-hmm. and you can tell that he's think it, it's him gauging exactly who he has leverage over. It's beautifully done. This is a, this is yeah. Forget this being called a black exploitation movie. This is just a truly great crime movie, um, and it there's no point where it softens out or gives you an easy get out or drops into a cliche or anything. This is this is. Yeah, one of the the great forgotten films of of um, of the seventies, and there are very good reasons why Quentin Tarantino on the opening sequence of um, Jackie Brown, still my favorite Tarantino movie, that he uses. It's a different version of the Bobby Womack song. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 
but it's you know you catch that moment of, of desperation and sadness and that's what the, this is a really sad movie in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. this is about people who they realize this is their last chance you know the mob guy is his last chance anthony quinn is his last chance the bank robbers is their last chance you know that the the world is is has no place for them anymore and it, it, this is a a tragedy within a stunning stunning detective film and you're absolutely right and i think that's most well most eloquently communicated by there's a speech one of the robbers has about um not standing a chance like we don't stand a chance to do this we did it we didn't stand a chance to um you know i didn't stand a chance to survive past 20 i did it i didn't stand a chance of getting out of jail i did like and it's it you're right it's all about that desperation and kind of the the sad fate of um you know where where you were born and it's yeah no it's it's a brilliant film uh if i had one gripe uh with the blu-ray it's that there aren't subtitles and I know that no, not everybody cares about that, but the other two movies we're going to talk about that were released by Kino Lorber both do. So it's odd to me that this one wouldn't. Huh. You know what I mean? Especially since the next film we're going to talk about is a, pretty much take across. Particularly, particularly actually, because I have to say there are there was a couple of sequences where uh, the sound mix is very specific, right? Um, mm. And I think if you do have any hearing impairment, I think it's actually it, it, you may have a little problem there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a small gripe about yeah, no, very much getting so. a, a true forgotten classic of American seventy cinemas back into people's hands. You know, this this pro, I'm going to say now retroactively, this ties with Captain America: Winter Soldier for my pick of the week for wow. very different reasons. But this is this is a, a a piece of cinema I think you need in your house. And when Kino Lover announced it, I did a dance because I was so thrilled. It was a very ugly dance with with no <laughs> rhythm at all. Uh, because anybody who's seen me dance knows that's what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, this is this is pretty much. A, I think, like Cap, this is pretty much a must buy. Well, I got to say, the next movie we're going to talk about. Uh, now, think about everything we've said about Across 110th Street that mitigates it being a black exploitation film, and throw those out the window, <laughs> and get like the the most uh, stereotypically black exploitation movie, uh, you know, paradigm in your head. That is Cotton Comes to Harlem. It is it is mm-hmm. a very similar setup. It is two cops. Who are trying to solve a uh, a robbery, uh, but this time instead of the mob being hit, it was a, a local preacher slash uh, political activist who's kind of become revered. And during one of he has this movement, um, the hold on the uh, Reverend Deco Malley. And during one of his his rallies, where what he's trying to do is he's trying to convince. Uh, the black citizenry to uh, move back to Africa. Everybody, we're we're gonna. Uh, if you give us a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever it is, you're gonna book passage on the ship. We're gonna go uh, back to Africa together and be happy. It's this scam that he's running in all these cities. Is a completely dirty guy. Um, but there's a robbery where people make off with, uh, I believe it's three hundred thousand dollars of his money. And or maybe that was no three hundred thousand was the other. It's, it's, yeah, it's sure. a very it's a very closely uh, it's a very similar amount. Um, so you have two cops, Grave Digger. Oh, okay. You have two cops, Grave Digger Jones and Coffin Ed Johnson. Um, basically, they're just—they're not dirty cops, but they're cops that don't. They're—they're they're Vic Mackeys. Mm. They're two guys that just don't give a shit and are going to solve the case no matter what they need to do. And these two guys, these two actors, the characters are played by uh, Godfrey Cambridge and Raymond St. Jacques, who are two guys, even as much black exploitation as I watch, 
that I haven't seen in anything else. <laughs> but these two guys together are just such it's like freebie in the bean. Like these are real this is a really great buddy cop situation. And what I especially love the most is that Gravedigger has this look on his face all the time like Mm, yeah, go fuck yourself. Like, no matter what situation, like people have guns to his face, and he's just like, whatever. Like he just does, he has zero fucks to give. He has run out of all the fucks, none to give you. I am sorry. And they start digging deeper into this investigation and investigating the Reverend himself. And then there's uh, there's a, a murder situation that the Reverend's involved in that they're trying to pin him to. And but the thing is, where's across 110th Street? You know, takes strides to be its own. Uh, very legitimate, gritty 70s cop drama. This is a dopey, silly, you know, it has moments that work a lot like 110th Street, but then there are moments of like Red Fox trying to sell a bale of cotton in Harlem. No oh dear. And it's just like, you know, and, and just being a very silly character. Uh, and there's like pies getting like literally at one point somebody gets a pie in the face. When like, is that not great cinema? I'm just saying that it's a very different tone than the one struck in uh, in across 110th Street. But it's it's operating on such a similar level that I think these two movies would make a great double feature. Uh, and I re- like I said, I think what really carries this movie are the performances of Godfrey Cambridge and Raymond St. Jacques. And actually, Calvin Lockhart, who plays Reverend Tico Malley, it just plays it with this like really oily charm like you you can understand why people would totally flock to him but you can also see why he's such a scumbag and i and and red fox like i said red fox has a small role in it who dat, who dat there? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a really great movie and uh it's it's just a very different film than across 110th street it's playing with a very different bag of tricks uh but i i really really enjoyed it and like I said, I think these two make a, a great double feature, and it does have subtitles. I'm just going to throw that out there. Weird choice. I know. Moving on to the third film released this week by Kino Lorb, or, or actually, I think they released a gaggle. Uh, uh, this is they. They're really they, they put Grizzly out recently as well. Why didn't I get Grizzly? Because the world is not that kind. Okay, I'm I'm going to do it one more time, and I'm sorry. If anybody out there listening would like to buy me a copy of Grizzly on Blu-ray, <laughs> that is one of my favorite. Nature goes fuck up. Uh, horror films and one of the best Jaws pair or Jaws ripoffs of all time. Let, by, done by the same people that did Great White, which is the world's most overt Jaws ripoff, and Day of the Animals, which oh. is like all of nature conspires against humanity, and the way they communicate that in the movie is by having the animals position next to each other and then look at each other and yeah. it's like do 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 shifty eyes <laughs> like, seriously it looks like actually looks like they're going into a store to buy porn mac it's like <laughs> which, of a, which of us looks old enough <laughs> ted what? you're a gazelle you've got horns you go in they'll believe you're 18 how old are we in the respective animal years that we are yeah uh the third film that we're going to talk about though from the kino lorber blu-ray releases is a funny thing happened on the way to the forum which is actually uh, a movie, a musical that I had seen many years ago and really, really enjoyed. Uh, it's from 1966, and you've seen this as well. A bajillion times. This is something that appeared on the BBC about once every five minutes. They, they'd have it in, in strict rotation with It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, those, those make a great Is it feature. a holiday? Yes, then put then put on one of those two. Yeah. That, that and Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, I, I think a funny thing happened on the way to the forum would make a great double feature with either It's a Mad, 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 Mad World or History of the World Part 1. Yes. Um, it, it takes place uh, in the well uh, on the way to the forums. So you can kind of guess that it takes place in Rome, in ancient Rome, and it's all it's it, it focuses on Zero Mostel, who plays the slave of a very affluent family, and it's it, it's a farce. And uh, as you know, with farces, 
uh, there are a lot of kind of set up storylines uh, with a ticking clock, a lot of mistaken identity, a lot of opening and closing of doors. Like all of the things that define farce are in this movie, are centerpieces of this movie. Uh, and it's about Zero Mostel trying to uh, set up his young master with this girl that he's fallen in love with who just happens to be a virgin courtesan. You figure that out. Uh, because right next door is a, a house of ill repute. And Zero Mostel the whole time is trying to earn his freedom, so he tries to uh, leverage, I'm going to get you with this girl if you'll grant my freedom, but she's promised to a vicious Roman general who kind of looks like Bluto from Popeye. Uh, so he's coming to get her, so they have to figure that out. In the meantime, the brothel is run by Terry uh, Silver. Or, I'm sorry, not Terry. Terry Silver is the bad guy in, Phil three, Silver. in three Ninjas. Phil Silver is, uh, you know, as in uh, Sergeant Bilko, Phil Silver. Is the probably, this is probably his last worthwhile performance actually? Like really? he did some real garbage after this, but like and, he, and it, pretty clear he was not the man he used to be. Mm-hmm. But I think this this is him going. I've still got that that squalid magic, right? And you know, so he's running the uh, the brothel and he's having issues as well. So he's trying to squander out or you know wiggle out of those. And then uh, the young master's father thinks that the. The girl has fallen in love with him. So, again, a lot of mistaken identity, a lot of uh, interwoven uh, crazy plot lines that all have to be resolved by a certain time. And just a lot of great songs. Uh, The opening song in this is absolutely hilarious. Uh, A comedy tonight. Uh, Something amusing, something confusing, something for everyone. A A comedy comedy tonight. tonight. It's so much fun. That uh, was why you were so musical. You were just yes. warming the pipes for that moment. I think oh, so. I bless think you. everything else was just a prelude to to what I just this, did. This is such a weird film at so many levels because this is actually Stephen Sondheim does a sex comedy. Yes, this is literally yes. what it is. Stephen, yeah, this is Stephen Sondheim uh, at his just goes. I'm going to do a bawdy comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be you know, wife swapping and toga jokes and vestal virgins. Yep. There's nothing subtle. Yeah. I mean, you're throwing this, this script at zero Mostel. Um, and it's great. You know, it's yeah. dopey. It's huge comedy writ large. The plot does not make an awful lot of sense. No. But it's, basi- it's basically just a chance for people to wander around and go honka honka. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but the songs are, are great. Yeah, you know, this is one of these. I think this is one of the ones that really broke Sondheim in to the, the popular audiences like, oh, this guy writes good tunes. And this is also one of the very last commercially successful um, musicals. They mm. pretty much die after this. I mean, and, and I think rightly so, because, you know, really. Um, well, they had My Fair Lady's Michael Crawford, who I think when most people think of uh, musical, what's the opposite of an ingenue? What's, what's the male counterpart of an ingenue? Onjin. Onjin. We'll call him an Onjin. When people think of an Onjin, they think of Michael Crawford from uh, My Fair Lady. And so having him in this, I thought, was really great. And I also love the song, Everybody Ought to Have a Maid, which is uh, basically just a song about how much they all want to fuck maids. Yeah. It's... <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing subtle going no. going on here. I but mean, the dialogue, the sexual is politics are no. of their era, shall we say? A little bit, um, a little bit. Although I will say that I really like the dialogue and the way that it almost goes full Shakespearean with the way it 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 weaves in the dirty jokes into the conversation, into yeah. a lot of 
double entendres and a lot of uh, yeah, it's just it's really fun. And to And as watch. a man who loves his puns, this is a film. I'm uh, just saying, built for you. Yeah, I'm this just is, saying. You know, it, a, a kind of second tier classic that I think has fallen by the wayside, but has aged extremely well. Yeah, unlike unfortunately Buster Keaton, who has a small role in the movie and had not aged particularly well. Oh, I think he was pickled at that point. Yeah, and I think this may have been his last movie, if I'm not mistaken. Because no, I think he did. I have did he do the Beach made... Blanket Bingo movies after this, or that whatever the? I have a funny feeling it's something after this but i can't remember what it was he did it he <laughs> the did professionalism a, folks the are, professionalism. are you saying he did a funny thing after a funny thing happened on the way to the forum moving on moving on <laughs> check it out great great musical you should check out the look on my face is what you should check out. you know what i'm gonna write a song called everybody ought to have a whitaker just in honor of you except that it's not gonna rhyme with a lot but uh no. we'll figure it out moving Picketer. on what picketer picketer the picketer cricketer cricket ah oh, see and that's yeah, british that's yeah, british like you go. is british we have a very short song, three lines, and you're out. <laughs> Is that how cricket works too? No, no, no. Cricket takes so long; it has meal breaks. <laughs> it actually tea. does. It they has a tea. it has a meal break. Oh my gosh! You oh. got to break for dinner, and then you got to break for tea, and then you got to stop long enough so you, your sandwiches can settle. You guys just can't do anything right. <sighs> Moving on. <laughs> Hang on. We invented a sport with a meal break. What's not right about that? Hmm. Yeah. You make an interesting there you point. Go. Well, moving on, or in fact... Hang on, no, wait, wait. No. Uh, I'm still eyeing you. Now, now you can move on. <laughs> We're going to night move on to a film that Richard and I are going to be split right down the middle on. And that is... No, 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 no. Night no, no, no. moves. I'm going to be correct and you're going to be wrong. Oh, there it is. There we are. Oh, it's like Chris is still here. <laughs> uh, night moves, which is a recent... Thriller, I guess, is what they're saying. That's no, adorable. No, it's not a thriller. No, it's not it's an at anti, all. It's an anti-thriller. Oh, I agree with that. It's Absolutely. Because it wasn't thrilling at all. Should we to... just rerun our argument about Locke from a couple of weeks ago? Because oh, it's going to be very, very similar to that experience I, for, I our, get... for our devoted listeners. I think you might be right. But why don't you go ahead and tell people what the quote-unquote plot is in this film? Well, the basic idea is that... Um, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Dakota Fanning, and Peter Sarsgaard are three monkey wrenchers um, who decide... <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think it means. No, it's just funny. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, who decide that they're going to blow up a hydroelectric dam uh, outside of Portland. Um, and this film basically is about ex- about unra- unraveling them as characters and who they are and how they all come to this one moment where they do something incredibly violent and their different motivations, which are never explicitly stated. Yeah. This film, you don't want character motivations explained in a movie. Well, that's the thing. I think they wanted to make a film where it is explained by what they do rather than what they say. Um, and I liked that a lot, I have to say. Um, the, you may be the, right that that's what they were doing, but to me it was like they never actually... They never actually answered. I don't feel like their characters are are that layered or that complex that you could actually d- discern from their actions or... God forbid Jesse Eisenberg's unchanging face. What exactly their motivations are? Well, I think I think that's built up by. I disagree. I, I think that's built up by how they interact, who they are, little glimpses of what we get about them. And the thing is that this film really drops you into uh, really midway through the second act of where a lot of other films would do this. They are already locked into doing this. They already decided we're going to blow up this dam. We're going to, you know, to stop people building more golf courses and watering their lawns and all this stuff. And they've made the decision this is the right thing to do. There's no argument. There's no going back. And I think, you know, it's about them 
dealing with what they've done and how they and and how they they approach their own personal emotional response to it more than law enforcement more than oh they're going to find us it's like how do they deal with the fact that they have done this thing that they've worked so hard to do and now they have to deal with the fact it actually happened it has consequences and was it worthwhile uh you know there's a wonderful moment where someone, where after they they uh, after the actual act someone says well you know you keep blowing up hydroelectric dams uh you may as well start building nuclear power plants because that's the next cleanest thing we can do for power and are you prepared to go without power um it, it's not a simple film it's and it poses some very difficult questions um I, you know i honestly feel a lot of the influence of, of eric roma in here and i love eric roma's work um but i know he's not for everybody uh, by any stretch of the imagination, I think this is one of those clear cases. I think Sarsgaard's great again, but he's always great. It's a little too laconic in some places, but there's this air of malice to what he does. Um, Eisenberg, I think, is on roll at the moment uh, between this and the double of just difficult choice films that I think are really working for him. Um, and Dakota Fanning has a, a great sequence where she is trying to bluff that she's allowed to buy the the explosives for this. And I really like that because the char- no, the other people on the other side of the conversation don't realize this is a high-stakes moment. So it's like all the pressure is on her to be able to get this done. And I really liked that. It's a, Yeah, in some ways, it's almost an actor's experiment more than a a full-fledged movie but i i you know considering who the actors were i was really uh, you know i was on board with this you could have called this movie the laconic and the littoral because the dam is on a lake oh, oh see there, there's some vocab for you i will also point out that this movie should have been called night mumbles because every step of the way at every turn these actors are mumbling Mumbling, Like, I know mumblecore has become a fashionable term for criticizing independent film. And there are some films where, you know, they, they could speak a little bit louder. This is literally Eisenberg going... I cranked my TV up as loud as it would possibly go. And I couldn't fucking hear anything they were saying. And it, well, it's not just... Oh, oh, and best part, Cynodyme, thanks for no subtitles on Night Mumbles. <laughs> You sound like my granddad. I'm sorry. Where's like I shouldn't have to plug in. Like if this was showing in a theater, I wouldn't walk up to the screen and plug in fucking headphones. Speak up, goddammit. If if all we have to go on Should about I get your worth is original. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If this is going to be one of those anti-thrilling thrillers where we have to discern how these characters are feeling based on their words and their actions, we should at least be able to hear what they're fucking saying. And that's it's like this movie does everything possible to keep you at arm's length. And I don't mean that in the way that it's like, oh, it's very it's Brechtian and it's very complex. No, it's complete hogwash. <laughs> it is completely ridiculous. And it's almost as if they knew they didn't have much of a movie. So to keep you guessing, they're going to withhold the dialogue from you. That way you'll always have to wonder what these characters are thinking and what they're feeling. Because you can't fucking hear a word they say. <laughs> Boom. Night <Hey>. moves. <laughs> Agree to disagree. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I I don't think Richard is wrong for liking it. Uh, it's the evidence is mounting, but it, I don't think he's wrong for not for liking night moves. I'm just saying that for me, when you look at the box, and you we're gonna do this again. This is just like what happened with Locke. Look at the box, Richard. Look at the 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 praise that was given this movie. It was like nail biting, almost Hitchcockian, and I was like. There is nothing no, nail-biting no, about this movie at no. all. There is nothing Hitchcock about this movie at all. 
Not even a little bit. Which which Fox outlet or, or Entertainment <laughs> Weekly scrub staffer did those quotes come from? I mean, that really You're bugs right. me that like it, it, it when they sell films like this that way, it pretty clearly is an insult to the audience that they you can't go this is intelligent or you might have to work a little bit to enjoy this because then you just because then the audience who will do that is probably just going to go, well this looks like a red box piece of shit. It should have said, adrift on a lake of molasses with no regard for an audience whatsoever. <laughs> that would have been a quote I could stand behind 100%. Absolutely. I liked its bravery. <laughs> it bravely doesn't let you know what's going on or why you should care. Nah, it's a brave film. <laughs> floating on. Floating on. Floating to, on. To something else that I think shouldn't exist, uh, and that is Angry Video Game Nerd, the movie. Yeah, that guy made a movie. Now, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to sit here and lambast the guy for what he does online i think he's actually pretty funny the thing is just because you are a moderately successful online personality doesn't mean that you should have your own movie and i think if anything that's what this film proves this is something that he funded what on kickstarter for like he got like a million dollars i think or something ridiculous to make how much have we went on hookers and blood? I know. It's like you watch this movie and it's like, did this really cost you anything near a million dollars? The basic storyline here is apparently enough people have asked the angry video game nerd to review. Because that's what he does is he reviews shitty games and he comes up with shitty like... Shitty vintage games. Shitty vintage games. And he comes up with 13 or 14 fecal related portmanteaus uh, to describe exactly how bad the games are. Um, and so in this movie, it's everybody has finally he's reached critical mass on people asking him to review the E.T. Uh, game. And be, and it's right on the heels of the studio. The, the video game company is going to release E.T. 2 and it's going to be even worse. And they're diabolical. Okay, can, plan. We, can we point out that because they couldn't actually get the rights to use the word E.T., <laughs> it's, it's E. e- Triple E T T double E. Yeah, absolutely. And and their diabolical plot is they're going to make a game really bad on purpose, so the angry video game uh, angry video game nerd reviews it, and then they'll sell through the roof. This is indicative of my entire problem with this movie. This guy is stroking his cock the entire time. He could like the grandiose view that he has of himself is unbelievable where he literally starts off the movie with not only are millions of people all over the world fans of mine and demanding that I play this game, but I am so important to the video game industry that they are actually changing their uh their release platform based on whether I will review something and that's what's going to make the game sell like crazy. I'm just like be more full of yourself. Oh, or the one point when a really hot, busty girl asks him to sign her tits. Yeah. I was just like, stop it. Just just get, get over yourself, I'm probably, man. I'm probably saying it doesn't happen. You know, I, I, was, I, I think I was, I was more forgiving to this. This is basically the same kind of thinking that, you know, gave Elvira a film or gave, you know, with Al a film back when, back when he was just a guy that made funny videos. You know, is this as good as... You know any of Elvira's films, or as as good as UHF, which is a, I think an American classic. No, it's it's dopey, it's silly, it's disposable. Um, That's a good word for yeah, it. Yeah, uh, it has a couple of good gags. Uh, it it's not great. And I think if you I think if you're a fan of Angry Video Game Nerd, you are gonna love this. If you're not, it's probably not gonna encourage you to go back and see it. It's it, it's really overly long. Yeah. Oh my god, this it has no business being 112 minutes. This could have been in and out in 80 minutes and been 
probably as funny. But it's got some like you know good dopey laughs. I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen worse. If if you ask me, would I have would I rather watch this blended or a haunted house two? Uh, I'd go with this. Well, it's because those other movies are diarrhea ass dumps. <laughs> yeah. That makes me think of a shit I took the other day. This this is all video angry video game nerd comedy, and I think the difference between or possibly direct quotes, possibly, and, and not only I think what the biggest difference is between this and UHF and uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is that both Elvira and Weird Al have more than one facial expression. Yeah, uh, the video game nerd makes one face throughout this entire movie, and it's like. Again, just because you are a personality online does not make you an actor, does not make you someone who needs their own movie. And if it's just fan service, why not cut out the middleman? Don't charge your fans, you know, collectively a million dollars to make something that's just for them. Just keep making videos. I don't understand the point of that. If this is just for fans, which I really agree with you that it is, why make it in the first place? Why not just keep making videos online? You know what is I don't understand. You know what is that face is? That it, when he does it. What? Just, it, it, he's managed to do the kind of completely upward-pointing lower lip of uh, Beaker from the Muppets. Shitty asterids. Yes. Oh, yeah, one man. for the fans. One, for one, the fans. one for the fans. If you're an AVGN, uh, AV, yeah, AVGN fan, then you'll probably like AVGN TM. If he ever does... Yeah, angry podcast nerd the movie. We're in real trouble, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Fair enough. Fuddly Dunch. But that's the thing is I won't do that movie because I don't have an elevated opinion of what it is that I do. <laughs> when people come up to me and they're like, hey, I'm a big fan. I'm like, why? <laughs> like, what, there are so many better people to be fans of, man. Yeah. Anyway. Keep listening, though, folks. Keep listening, Keep please. Listening. Tune on in. I didn't mean for you to stop listening. Oh, they've already cut. Oh. They've already tuned out. No, oh, damn it. Vengeance is mine! It's the next movie we're going to talk about, which is this week's Criterion release. This is actually a film uh, that they've released several years before on DVD, as with most of the Blu-ray releases Which is doing. pretty much everything Criterion's doing at the moment. Come on, right. lads. Yeah, that's true. You know, try a bit harder. You've been, you, you know, I, I mean, and I have no objection to going back and remastering, but considering some of their some of their DVD releases, you're not going to get much better than that. Is no. there a good reason to if you're if you've already got this on DVD, is there a good reason to come back and get this on blue? I don't know um, because I saw Thank this. You. Yeah, I know. That was I'm, constructive. Yeah, this is this is why I fail at what I do and why no one will make a movie about what I do. Because um, when I saw it, it was it was the DVD Criterion, and it is a Japanese film about a, a serial murderer that is based on a true story. And the film is told largely in flashback because at the, at the beginning of the movie, the guy's been caught. And so it's just kind of this long-winded unraveling of all of his mis- like. And when I say all of his misdeeds, they basically go back to the guy's childhood when his father, a fisherman, had his boats stolen by the Japanese government because he was a Christian and the Japanese government didn't like that. So they, they took all of his boats. And you see him like attack a uh, as a kid attack a a, a a military officer in the Japanese military, um, and then it just kind of goes through all of these like basically if you imagine catch me if you can except instead of being a lost young young man who uh, just wanted to find his way in the world Leonardo DiCaprio was murdering people uh, that would be this film because it is like he he pretends to be a lawyer and he uh, swindles money out of people. And then he stays at this hotel and convinces everyone he's a, he's a university professor. And then he convinces the the woman who runs the hotel to fall in love with him. And then he murders her. And it's just like that. It's it's like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, except that he's Japanese. And the film has one of the oddest endings 
of any, and I, and this is, understand the weight of what I'm about to say. One of the oddest endings of any Japanese film I've ever seen. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I want to spoil it, but suffice to say, it involves throwing bones in the air, and every bone that is thrown, there's a freeze frame, and then they cut back to the people throwing them with this look of astonishment on their face, almost as if they can see the frame being frozen, and then they just throw another bone. And it's just like, that's how the movie ends. Huh. It's a very, very bizarre film that is really more of a character deconstruction about somebody who has really just abandoned any notion of a moral compass and is just living uh, one to escape judgment or, or at least uh, incarceration and to take whatever they want because they've uh, they've had a really messed up life. Oh, and he has a very messed up relationship with his father going forward because while he was in jail for fraud. His father started sleeping with his wife, and it's just, it's a really, like, he's had a real shit life, and he becomes a real shit heel, and it, it's it's beautifully, like, the cinematography is beautiful. I will say it is way overly long. It's like two hours and 20 minutes. It really could have been cut down, and but it is, it is an interesting film, and it is something that you don't see a lot of uh, from Japanese cinema, or at least Japanese cinema that's featured in the Criterion Collection, which is mostly um, sort of... Uh, slice of life movies or samurai films or you know this is really a uh, a there's a lot of there's it's bloody there's a lot of sex in it it's very it's very sleazy and yet very artistic at the same time it's a very strange film and there's a great interview uh, on this Criterion release with the director and it's it's great because it's from the 70s and they're all just sitting around a table smoking <laughs> and talking very. Uh, Drinking Suntory. They're, yeah, they're just sitting around smoking and talking about like the art of filmmaking in general, and it's just it's this very grandiose discussion they're having while they're like a, a cloud of smoke billows out in front of them. It's it's fantastic. It's a movie I highly recommend seeing, but it's not going to be everybody's cup of sake. Like it is, it is going to really alienate some people. And as much as I enjoyed it the first time, I have to say on this second viewing, I was kind of it just. It didn't grab me the same way it did the first time I watched it, and I'm not really sure why, but it just it, it looks great on this Blu-ray, and it's a really fascinating uh, character portrait, but it's uh, it's long-winded, and it's, it's going to be hard to get into, I feel. Mm. Oh, well. Well, that brings us to the last title of the night, which is also going to be our... Yeah, that just that broke all the microphones. Um, <laughs> this is Dogs a movie, are crying as we speak. It, true. This is a movie called Heavenly Sword. And Richard, I'm going to let you... I'm going to be completely honest with you here. I got about 20 minutes into this and realized that this is so not my thing that I have lost the capacity to understand if it's even done well because I have no frame of reference for it whatsoever. So it's based on a video game. Yeah, it's it's okay. based on the it's it's based on the video game uh Heavenly Sword uh for I think it was one of the title, launch titles for the PS2. Okay. Or possibly the PS3. I can't remember now because it's been so long. Um and What are they on now? PS7? Uh PSPS. When they stop side scrolling, I stop caring. Yeah, they Um and it, you know, the they sold it as oh, this is going to be one of the great um, hack and slash games for you know, it's going to be the launch title. We put a lot into it. It's going to look unique and distinctive and beautiful. Um, and the big selling point was that it was female protagonist. Yeah, and it was kind of dull. 
and it was basically a rail rider. You went along and you didn't really have much control. That was the big complaint at the time. They said, well, you know, at least it's got a strong plot. And so really what they've done is pretty much just, yeah, take that plot and make a film out of it. You know, you, they basically re-rendered the game um, and just put all the cut sequences together to a certain degree. Yeah. And it and That's kind of what it felt a new like. voice. And it's, I, I think if you liked the game, uh, you'll probably like this. Um, the animation, the, the CGI is is really good. It's very bizarre in a lot of ways because there's, you know, it kind of looks like bits of it are traditional um, anime version of what medieval Japan, well, medieval China, more more relevantly looked like. Uh, but then suddenly they run into what looks like a Warhammer army um, in huge <laughs> huge plate mail. Um, yeah. <sighs> I, this is this is very much one for the fans. I, I think, I, I, you know, not not my cup of tea. But I think if you like the uh, the game, I think you'll probably enjoy this. They do build up some of the characterization a bit. Um, they you know get some new voices in to do some voice work. Alfred Molina turns up as as a, uh, a an evil villain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thomas Jane turns up and actually dies pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> if you listen though, a few times during the movie, Thomas Jane's voice is played by Aaron Eckhart. No um, one notices. It's oh, crazy because they look exactly the same. Gosh. I can't Aww. tell white people apart. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is part of this this uh, current habit of, of what five years ago would have been prohibitively expensive CGI films, um, which you can now knock out for a reasonable price. Uh, yeah, mm, not for me. Um, but it could be for you if you happen to win you. our giveaway. Yeah, and I'm going to give Richard a break. I'm actually going to come up with the prompt for this one because I really? thought of it while you were talking. Oh. Yes. So as you know, what we do for our giveaways is we do writing prompts on Twitter. So what you're going to want to do is follow us at one of us net. And then I want you to tweet at us. I want you to think of a game that doesn't deserve a really dark and gritty film. But then I want you to imagine that dark and gritty film. of, For example, uh, a really dark and gritty film version of Dig Dug. And then I want you to tell me who would direct it. So your tweet should look something like, David Lynch's Dig Dug. Uh, and then hashtag that uh, Heavenly Sword giveaway. And uh, we'll pick our favorite, and that person will win a DVD copy of Heavenly Sword open to U.S. residents only. Sorry about you. Yeah, unless you're going to send us the money for the postage. Yes. In, yeah, in there which you case, go. In, well, yeah. In well, which... you've got a friend over here we can send it to. That's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. That's it's like true. international folks. If you've got a, got a friend in the States and, and you, you can use their postal address, yeah, that's fine, I yeah. think. Yeah, as long as we're mailing it to a, uh, a, you know, a 48 or whatever. There are 50 states. Uh, as long as we're mailing it Did somewhere. Did you really? I was going to say 48 Continental, but then I thought, well, Alaska, Hawaii, I think we've sent there too. I don't know. Uh, it, wasn't that I, it wasn't that I forgot the number of states. I was trying to remember if we no, if no, we no, sent to Alaska, forget. Hawaii. You no, didn't forget. No, I never, I never make mistakes like you, that, Richard. You just don't count the Carolinas. That's you. I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't count Florida either, technically. Well, Ray, that's going underwater. That's <laughs> It'll just be a sinkhole. Aww. Even more so. Well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. I want to thank you guys for joining us. I want to remind you that you can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also follow the show at DigiNoiseCast or the website at One of Us Net on Twitter. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Guy Salisbury. And I'm at YorkshireTX. And uh, you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash One of Us Net. Please become a subscriber. Please use those Amazon links. But until next week, I'm going to end the show the way I always do, by taking my pants off and touching Richard inappropriately. What? No, no, wait, no. I mean, I mean by saying... 
No release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Bye!